Welcome to Newcastle Family History Society podcasts. The Newcastle Family History Society, located on a Wabakal land in Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia, provides support for those interested in family history. This fascinating series on the Newcastle Industrial School and Reformatory continues as Jane Ison explains the difference between the two institutions and recounts the life of an infamous inmate. In the 1860s, confusion about what was a reformatory and what was an industrial school was very common. Even the magistrates misunderstood at times. Now the terms industrial school and reformatory are used by many to mean the same thing. For this historic period, this is wrong. So what was the difference between the two institutions? And why was there any reformatory at all? In this fourth podcast in the Bad Girls series, I will outline the differences between the two institutions. We will also learn a little about the life of the most notorious Newcastle admission. You will not find her name recorded in any of the records for the Newcastle or Biloela Industrial Schools because she was a reformatory girl. Her admission records have not survived, yet you can read all about her in the newspapers. The industrial school had been established in Newcastle in August 1867, but the behaviour of the wild children of New South Wales continued to concern the government. In trying to solve the problems on the streets, the government reasoned that it was women who needed to be controlled, reformed and protected, so they would become good members of society and so would their offspring. Women cared for children and many were having babies at a very young age, so the problems just kept growing. There was never a reformatory for boys at this time. Eventually, laws to establish the reformatory passed and the institution opened at the very end of January 1869, right beside the industrial school in the building that we now know as the officers' quarters. The staff at the industrial school used these buildings as their offices, but it was also where they lived, often with their own children. The buildings on the site were becoming quite crowded. At no stage were there ever many girls in the reformatory. To be admitted, you needed to be under the age of 16 and to have committed a crime that would have put you in jail for at least 12 months. Instead of a jail, you would stay in the reformatory for a set period of time where, like the industrial schoolgirls, you would receive vocational training, cooking, cleaning, washing, sewing and mending. There has been no evidence yet found that staff would guarantee to find employment for any reformatory girl, unlike the industrial schoolgirls who were almost always apprenticed. Reformatory admissions were simply released back into society when their time was up. Agnes King had lost her position as the matron superintendent of the industrial school in December 1868 upon the appointment of Joseph Hines Clark as superintendent and his wife Marion as matron. King, however, remained in Newcastle and set up the Newcastle Reformatory. She became its matron 
a position she kept when both institutions moved to Biloela on Cockatoo Island in 1871. In 1880, King again moved the reformatory to Vaucluse, where it was known as the Shaftesbury Reformatory. Admission records between 1874 and 1888 have not survived, but one letter named the girls sent to the reformatory in Newcastle. There were five admissions altogether, but only about three were in the reformatory at any one time. These five girls were Jane Lord, admitted from Singleton, Ellen Youngman from Stony Creek, Louisa Winter from Ulladulla, Jane Taylor from Penrith, and Marianne Meehan from Newcastle. Marianne became infamous. Marianne Meehan was the reformatory's second admission. Who her parents were is still clouded in mystery but she had been born in either Tamworth or Maitland. She was arrested in Newcastle in May 1869, charged with stealing a diamond ring, and was sentenced to three years in the reformatory. Mary Ann's stay in the reformatories at Newcastle and later Biloela was turbulent. She challenged authorities almost constantly over her incarceration, often being placed in solitary confinement and making many successful escapes. She had family in Newcastle and in the Brankston area west of Maitland, so she had many places to go to evade authorities. Various records describe Mary Ann as very beautiful. One of Mary Ann's responsibilities in the reformatory was to wash and iron the matron's clothing and Mary Ann took full advantage of this opportunity. For her first escape in February 1870, Mary Ann disguised herself in clothes stolen from Agnes King and her daughter, Mrs Barton. This theft put Mary Ann in Maitland Jail for three months. Two months after her return to the reformatory, she and the two youngest admissions, Jane and Ellen, absconded. Clark had to explain to the colonial secretary how this had happened. He wrote, I went to the dormitory where the three girls should be and found three forms made of blankets in the three beds and the girls gone. The forms were covered with quilts and looked like people in the beds. Upon further examination, the clothing that the girls had on was found in the paddock in front of the institution. Mrs King stated that she locked up the girls in the dormitory at about six o'clock but that she did not see Jane in the room. The other two girls told Mrs King that Jane was under the bed, that it was only her fun, that she would be out presently. Mrs King states that she locked the door and left the key in the lock, and that she suspects that Jane was in another room, and she unlocked the door and let the other two out. I then went in search of them, accompanied by two policemen. We arrested them about two miles out of town and brought them back to the institution at about 12 o'clock on the same night. They all say that the door was not locked, that there was no key in it. It was only bolted. Mian is now undergoing punishment in solitary confinement and on a bread and water diet. Mian is 16. She is not a bad-hearted girl, but very wild and easily led astray. The three girls were helped to escape by George Olshorn, a bus driver. 
Clark reported that he took them out of town in an omnibus. Alshon was brought before the Newcastle court charged with assisting in the escape and spent a month in Maitland Jail as punishment. A fortnight later, Mary Ann made her third successful escape and remained on the run for a month. Again, the clothes she was wearing had been stolen from employees of the school. After her arrest, Mary Ann declared that she had facilitated this latest escape by chopping through the wall with an axe. Clark again reported to the colonial secretary confirming that her escape was affected by cutting a hole in the iron fence that forms the back boundary wall of that institution. Clark described Mary Ann as very troublesome. A fourth escape in April 1871 occurred in company with two industrial schoolgirls, Lucy Arkin and Annie Howard, who were temporarily isolated within the reformatory buildings due to their individual upcoming court appearances. The girls were concealed by three men and remained at large for a week, living in a deserted hut on the Minmai Creek between Minmai and Taralba. Marianne was charged with destroying government property and absconding. She was sent to Maitland Jail for three months because she declared that she would escape again if she was returned to the school. The Newcastle Reformatory closed in May 1871, but because Marianne was still doing time in Maitland Jail, she did not immediately transfer to the Biloela Reformatory with the other reformatory girls. She arrived in August. After her readmission and at King's request, probably due to Mary Ann's threat that she would drown herself in the harbour, she was seen by the visiting Biloela school doctor, Owen Spencer Evans. He assessed her using phrenology, the then popular but now discredited and faulty science of character divination. Evans stated that, Mary Ann Meehan has a morose expression combined with cunning, a low degree of intelligence, a quick impulsive temper, when raised, violent and almost maniacal. Her head presents a low development of the intellectual and moral faculties. Lack of early control or restraint has tended, no doubt, to make her temper more difficult to manage. I think she is able to distinguish right from wrong and is responsible for her actions and that eccentricities of demeanour are put on for effect. I do not consider Marianne Meehan a proper subject for treatment in a lunatic asylum. Really? Mm. In September 1871, nearly a month after her readmission and with escape opportunities from an island being severely limited, Marianne set fire to the Biloela Reformatory. There were five girls in the reformatory by this date, The story of what happened was dramatically reported in Bell's life in Sydney. A pleasant flutter ran through the brilliant assemblage which thronged the central court on Monday when an angel from that paradise of Port Jackson, Biloela, cast off the brightness of her seraphic charms upon the bewildered justices, who gazed in speechless wonder on the fairy-like loveliness of the beautiful vision. The circumstances which led to the court being honoured with her angelic presence arose out of a brilliant idea which Marianne had formed of setting Cockatoo Island on fire. 
how Marianne proposed to carry out her grand pyrotechnical design will be gathered from the following narrative. Mrs. Agnes King, the mother of the maids at the Biloela Harem, narrated a thrilling tale of midnight horror that perfectly electrified the court. On Saturday morning last, between one and two, Mrs. King was wandering in dreams full of the most exquisite happiness when suddenly she was recalled to a consciousness of her mortal existence by hearing a crackling noise. On reaching the chamber of Sleeping Beauty, to Mrs. King's horror and amazement, she saw the door burning and the gentle Marianne raving like a fury and swearing in a style that could not be surpassed by any trooper in Her Majesty's service. At this appalling spectacle, Mrs. King gazed for a moment in speechless agony and then did what any lady in the presence of a burning door and an infuriated and swearing angel would do. She raised her eyes and hands to the ceiling, uttered a piercing shriek, and would very likely have gone off into a swoon had there been a pair of arms handy into which she could have conveniently fallen. The bench, bar, reporters, policemen, and public all regarded the fallen angel in the dock with looks of inextinguishable horror. Elizabeth Randall, another fascination of the harem, told with heartless simplicity how Marianne got up in the middle of Friday night, armed herself with matches, and set fire to the door. Randall went on to relate that the matches, as well as a saw and an axe, had been brought in by another girl when they all retired. She next described how Marianne made the fire with straw and stringy bark taken from her bed. When Jane Taylor was going to call out, Marianne swore that if she did, she would gag her. Mr. George Lucas told of reaching the scene of the conflagration. He beheld the charred portal and, what was still more awful, saw Marianne, from whom every spark of feminine feeling seemed to have fled, cruelly beating the unoffending door with the leg of a bedstead. Marianne was committed to the next court of general jail delivery. Marianne was charged with attempted arson. She denied the charge and pleaded not guilty. She was unrepresented in court and chose to defend herself. Her skills in questioning were commended by the judge. Marianne's detailed statement made during her summing up in court recounted a harrowing story of her time in the reformatories of Newcastle and Biloela. Her account was not chronological. It represents her perspective and presents a sanitised version of her admission to Newcastle. It makes poignant reading, but it doesn't accurately reflect the charges for which she was initially admitted. The Empire contains the best summary of the trial and the account reflects the frustration Marianne and probably many others felt with the system. Attempts to curb her rebelliousness must have been soul-destroying. Marianne, who is endowed with a remarkable degree of oratorical facility, cross-examined the witnesses with an astonishing display of forensic ability and endeavoured to insinuate by the course she adopted in regard to their testimony that the attempted firing of the premises was the result of a conspiracy in which all the girls participated and therefore they should share the penalty. In point of fact, this was the leading point of a very lengthened and plausible address to the court, which was artfully intermingled with a harrowing description of the treatment she had undergone at the old reformatory at Newcastle, 
where she alleged, even when she was over age and therefore, in her opinion, could not be legally detained, though she had been sentenced to serve three years at the establishment, her hair had been violently cut by Captain Clark and Mrs. Barton, under circumstances of great brutality. She also added that she had been led to believe that if she conducted herself well for certain periods, she should have her liberty. But these hopes had not been fulfilled, and hence she made up her mind to escape. For if she failed in the attempt, even the jail was preferable to the reformatory. She was willing and able to get her own living, for she had done Mrs. King's washing and ironing for two years. She had been sent to jail for six months, and she was willing to serve the remainder of her time in jail. There was justice in the jails, but none in the schools. She had been driven to do what was not good by being kept in the reformatory, as the confinement there was more than she could bear. She hoped his honour would take these circumstances into consideration, as she had nothing more to say. This could be no better confirmation that the phrenological assessment undertaken by Evans some weeks previously was rubbish. The judge expressed pain concerning Marianne's statement and voiced his concerns about the reformatory system. The jury foreman recommended mercy as the entire jury had felt acutely for her. Two members were willing to find her some employment. Eventually, Marianne pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of attempting to burn down a dwelling house and was sentenced to six months with hard labour in Darlinghurst Jail. She was released from Darlinghurst in May 1872 but never returned to Biloela. Although she had a job offered to her, she returned to Newcastle where in July 1872 she married George Olshorn, the bus driver who had helped her in her second escape from Newcastle. Marianne and George had a son who was born in 1873. Sadly, this baby died the following year. From about this date, Marianne and Olshorn separated, although both moved to Sydney. Tracing Marianne becomes very difficult after Orle Sean's death in 1882. But on the 5th of September 1882, just over a fortnight after Olshorn died, Marianne Olshorn married John Oldham in Sydney. Their relationship, however, had begun in about 1878. A number of children were born showing that Marianne had adopted the given names Emily Marion. From about October 1887, the marriage to John Oldham also began to fail. Marianne then began a relationship with Robert Dickerson, although no marriage occurred. By this time, Marianne had begun using initials in the newspapers, completely avoiding the use of given names and referring to herself as E.M. Oldham or E.M. Dickerson, names she used at least until 1902. Marianne probably operated brothels in Sydney to maintain her lifestyle, although she was only charged with operating a house of ill repute once and was eventually found not guilty. Marianne said that she had had no support from her husband. She managed very well and owned at least one racehorse. She was sufficiently well off to employ servants and advertise her boarding house extensively. Marianne died as Emily Marion Alden, 
in June 1927. She was buried with her son Stanley in Waverley Cemetery. I do hope that you are enjoying some of the stories from these interesting times and tales about these angels. Mary Ann Meehan's life was certainly colourful, but she was clearly a survivor. In the fifth episode of the Bad Girls Podcasts, we will investigate some of the success stories from the Newcastle Industrial School. Stories of young girls often sent far from their family who went on to become pioneering women and strong matriarchs working for a better future for their children. Thanks, Jane, for another insight into the Newcastle Industrial School and Reformatory and the life of Mary Ann Meehan. And, of course, if you'd like more details on Jane's research, visit her website, nis.wiki.com. With more stories to come, make sure you follow us on Newcastle Family History Society podcasts. Until next time.